All right, church, why don't we uh, gather in? I think we've got about everyone up here for the most part. So let's uh, stand and read 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be sound, ju- be sound in judgment and sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, in um, the beginning of the week and first preparing for this, as you know, there was maybe uh, looking at this going, what possibly is in here that is, could, you know, fulfill a full sermon in terms of content, because it seemed pretty straightforward. But like always, your word is surprising in that when you get into it, Lord, there's so many things that we can learn from you at a deeper level than first glance. I think today is one of those sermons, God, and I just pray that you'll bring that to the forefront and uh, your Holy Spirit will speak to us concerning the matters in here and will bring us to more unity as a church in terms of the way we view life within the family of God. So we look forward to our time and uh, look forward to our discussion afterwards and just that we'll be strengthened and encouraged by the message today. In Jesus' name, amen. If I were to venture a guess, I would think it'd be safe to say that all of you at some point in your Christian journey have thought about what it would be like for you when Christ comes back. What life will be like for you at the second coming of Christ. You probably thought about whether you'll be dead or alive when this event happens. Uh, if, if you're dead, you know, what will what'll it be like for your children who are left behind? Uh, and if alive, things, things like how old will you be, uh, you know, when this occurs, where will you be living at the time? And if you had to go through this, uh, if this event happened, had you had to endure persecution leading up to this moment? Actually, let me rephrase that. If you're dead, what would be like for your children? They'll be gone too, so never mind <laughs> on that one. If he comes back, all, all of us are, are raised. Mind you, I guess it could be true if they're uh, non-believers. It'll be a different story, so we'll see. Anyway, these are the kind of things, obviously, you have to think about and think through. But here's the thing. Most of those thought processes surround his future coming. His future coming in terms of what that looks like for you in your future. So you always think about your life down the road and what this event will look like. But here's a question. Have you ever thought about his coming back in terms of the present impact it would have in your life? What does it mean knowing he's coming back in terms of how it affects you now in terms of the way you live? And specifically, how this would impact your life within the church family here at Genesis House. See, Peter wants to address this. He wants to teach you and I today how the return of Christ should impact the way you and I live right here in this community of believers in our church. Everything from upstairs to downstairs to 
outside the church and relational or uh, social events we have and so on. So let's begin this by looking in verse 7. Here Peter says that the end of all things is near. And this, of course, was not Peter's way of saying that his letter was just about to come to a close and they could, you know, rest, rest assured it was almost over. Uh, but more the idea that uh, Christ was coming back. This was the phrase he had in think he was this, this was the event he was thinking of by using this phrase. And uh, we know it's an important thought in Peter because uh, he mentions this coming back of Christ five times in this letter, five times. And we'll just look at one of them here with me in 4.13, which we'll see next week. He says um, in 4.13, But to the degree that you have shared the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. So he's saying, you know, persist in your suffering knowing that Christ is coming back in the future. And when Peter uses this phrase, the end of all things is near, I believe that's exactly what he's referring to um, over and over again in the letter. But as a result of this reality, Peter then tells us that there's three things he wants us to consider in the terms of how we operate within the church family. There's three ways in which we're to concern ourselves in terms of how we're to live. And the first one is this. There's a concern for Peter in terms of our personal holiness in the church community. A concern for our personal holiness and we really pick this up in verse 7. He says, The end of all things are near, therefore be of sound judgment, number one, and be sober in spirit, number two. We're to be sound judgment, and we're to be sober in spirit. So what does that mean? Well, to be in sound judgment, if you look at the Greek word, uh, the Greek word means to be in one, one's right mind. To be sound, you're to be in your right mind, and you're to be sane. <laughs> Uh, it's used the demon-possessed man who Jesus encountered in Mark chapter 5. Do you remember the scene after he casts out the demon? He, the people that come and witness him at the tombs and they observe him. And it, it says there, he's sitting down, clothed and in his right mind. This describes the demon-possessed man now after the exorcism occurred. So this guy now is sane. He's not frantic and in a frenzy. He's not violent anymore. But he's in control of his thought life. He's in control and able to make sound and good judgments. And this is what we're called to be as well. We're not to be crazy and fanatical in expectation that Christ's return. We're to be pragmatic and rational so that we can make good decisions in whatever life throws at us, whether it be relationships, work, or leisure activities, etc. But we're also called here to be sober in spirit. And the word sober actually um, means to be vigilant or circumspect. Now, what does circumspect mean? Very easy in English, it's actually um, to be careful, to be cautious, to be on guard. So it's the opposite to being in a panic and being sort of like a, in a frenzy all the time. You know, it reminds me actually of the deer that roam our streets uh, late at night in the evenings. Uh, often they go across to the, my neighbor and he, they have a beautiful tree and there's always the, the deer are always in their yard and nobody else is eating all the berries off the tree. And what's funny is the boys uh, always see them out the window and they open the door and start running like onto like the driveway and sort of like yelling and like in excitement about the deer. But what's interesting about these deer is right away their ears go straight up and they stare at my kids the entire time. 
So they, but here's the key, they're not panicking, they're not bolting and running away, they just lift their heads, their ears go up, and they watch my boys intently until, in alertness, they're carefully, they're circumspect, they're, they're carefully and cautiously on guard to make sure that they know that they're safe. But they're not freaking out, they're not losing their minds, they're just basically going, I am aware of you, and I know you're there, and I'm just, but I'm going to be, have this calm readiness in case something happens. And that's exactly what we're to be like in the expectation of Christ's return. Our ears are to be up. We're we to be alert, but not in a frenzy, but an attentive, calm, and self-control. So when you put these two things together, you can see what Peter's asking from us now, knowing that Christ is coming back. We're not to be known as those people who predict dates. Don't be the people that say, he's coming back on this day at this time, and then you invite all your friends over, and you start gathering everybody, and make everybody else join in your like, panic, that uh, you have to do all these things, get all this stuff done, knowing that Christ is coming back. Don't organize your friends into social events, and have them all congregate in your yard, or in your, on your, in your house, in expectation that in a few hours, they're going to be you know, uh, lifted up into heaven. You don't stop working hard at your job. You don't quit your job. You don't shirk responsibilities in the family or in your relationships because you think, well, he's going to be here any time now. So what's the point? You don't start stockpiling bags of rice in your basement. You don't do any of these things. We're not to be fanatical. We're not to be spiritual weirdos. Instead, what Peter is telling us to do is exactly what I see in all the t-shirts and bumper stickers in the <laughs> Okotoks. Where there's this phrase saying, keep calm and chive on. Right? You see it everywhere in Okotoks. Keep calm and chive on. It means keep cool. Hang loose. That's what we're to do as Christians waiting for Christ's return. And when we do this, it enables us to, to make right decisions and to think properly through things. But one of the biggest purposes given for these, these reasons of character traits here is for what it's supposed to produce in our life. He says there, keep sound judgment and be sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. For the purpose of prayer. I don't think what Peter's saying here is that being of sound judgment and being sober spirit is what enables one to pray. As if people who are panicky and anxious and frantic can't pray. I don't think he's saying that. He's saying rather that having these two virtues cemented in one's life allows one to pray more effectively and more appropriately. And you could see why. I mean, if you're calm, if you're not in panic, and you can make rational, sane decisions and think through issues in life, and you're able to see through things through God's perspective, it will result in your prayer life taking on more clarity and, you, and having more substance. So as you look at the things going on around you, you're going to be able to make mature decisions and be able to pray within God's will and purposes because you're not flipping out about what's going on. So being, having these two characteristics affects your prayer life in a, in a positive way. You're not unsure of what to pray of, you know exactly how to pray, and you know what needs to be said in the categories that are facing you. The second area that uh, we are to be concerned of in our, in our personal lives, outside of our personal holiness, within the body of Christ, is this area of uh, concern for love within the Christian community. A concern for the love within the Christian community. This is found in verse 8 and verse 9. First, we are to be above all, keeping fervent in our love for one another. 
because love covers a multitude of sins. So the way we love one another is an imperative. The second one is our hospitality towards one another. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. I think it's important to notice in this uh, first verse 8, a key observation regarding where the love is to be expressed. It's for one another. In the context, that's within the Christian community. The, the, the love is not to be called for outside of the church. This is an in-house matter within the context of community of believers. Now, this is nothing new to us at Genesis House. I've spoken about this, the importance of this on numerous occasions over the last five years. So I'm not going to spend any more time on that. But what I do want to spend time on is the type of love that Peter requires of us. Notice the word here is fervent, fervent love. Keep fervent in your love. Well, we looked at this word several weeks ago in chapter 122, but it has to do with stretching and straining. And it's used as a physiological term to describe the stretching and straining of a muscle to its fullest capacity. So I think of a racehorse in Kentucky Derby, or like something like that, or a bull in the rodeo. When you, when you look at these horses in slow-mo, when, when the camera comes on them, every single muscle fiber in, in, those, in those animals is straining to the full capacity. You can even see like slobber coming out of their mouths and their tongues hanging out. They are giving it their absolute all. And they go from like sort of like these sort of like calm animals to full-on sweat, full-on strain, full-on effort in a matter of seconds. This is the kind of love that Peter's calling us to here in Genesis House. This is not sentimental love. This is sacrificial to the point that every fiber in your spiritual being will be stretched and strained in order to live this kind of life out. This will mean then it's not a love driven by deep desire or an emotion to serve. This will be a love driven by choice and an exercise of the free will. And why is this so important? Because Peter says here, if we do this, this kind of love will cover a multitude of sins. It'll cover a multitude of sins. What does Peter mean by this? Well, I think we could, it could be interpreted in two ways. First, it's the amount of sin. So in other words, um, love covers a multitude of sins, meaning if there's a repeated offense in a particular area, love can cover that. So it has to do more with covering a repeated offense. The second way it can be interpreted has to do with the scope of sins or the categories of sins. So it covers a, different, uh, covers a multitude of categories of sins, uh, and that's what love can do. And I actually suggest that he probably has more the scope or categories in mind. So it has to do with the, the different kinds of sin that's, that would occur in a church. A love, if you've loved in this way, can cover those, like all sorts of categories of sins in, one, in a church's a community. And I want to discuss two areas that I see deeply affecting the church in the New Testament. Because those are the areas that impact us at Genesis House as well. And I'm going to bring these up now. The first area that we struggle with, that we can we actually duplicate ourselves in the New Testament from, is superior, superiority and prejudice. The sins that happen in our churches are often superiority and prejudice complexes. I'll give you an incident in Luke chapter 9, verse 46. This is an argument occurring between the disciples. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. 
But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever received this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me in, uh, receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among you all is the one who is great. You know, what's going on here is the spirit of comparison. It's a spirit of comparison amongst the Christians here. They're flaunting their personal spiritual resumes, and there's a, this infighting between them. But notice again the, in, the context of the infighting. It's amongst themselves. So this is like an in-house uh, fight. This is between Jesus and his own people. This is what's going on here. And this is the kind of thing that happens in our, we can have in our church as well. You know, we can have this superiority and prejudice amongst ourselves. Uh, this infighting of who's the greatest. And it may not come out in an argument, but it can be reflected in different ways. For example, you walk into church, well, I'm not sitting beside those people. I'm not sitting beside them, I'm going to sit over there. Because there's a prejudice and superiority complex going on. You go downstairs for lunch, well, I'm not talking to them. I'm not going to talk to them. A superiority and prejudice thing going on. Or at men's and women's Bible studies, you know, you could be like, man, I wish that person would just stop talking so I could get my point across and really say what's actually going on here. Right? Because my point is more important and more superior to that person. It can happen in so many ways, even in our little congregation. And what does Jesus do with this? He rebukes them. Brings a child into the midst and says, you need to be like this, this little guy here, this little gal. Right after this, the next verses, another one happens. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he is not against you, it's for you. But what does John do? John doesn't have an in-house argument, he has an, an out-house argument. <laughs> Right? He's more concerned not about his own Christian community, but how his Christian community compares to another community. In other words, there's church bashing going on. My church is better than their church. This church is better than that church. And so on and so forth. He's concerned about other people who are, or who are following um, God's ways, but they're not part of Jesus' group. And so there's this spirit of comparison and prejudice and this idea of superiority of them. And all of us know how easy that is to do. I don't even have to talk about how many conversations that you and I have been put in or been in in which this has occurred in our own lives. And Jesus, what does he do for these, these guys here? For John, he rebukes them again. He says, do not hinder them, for he who is not against you is for you. If you're there, and so then because these men are for Jesus, they'd be for Jesus as well. Other examples of this? I'm just going to give you a few. Luke 22. Another argument amongst the disciples over who is great. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, there's divisions occurring in the church and factions. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Christ. And Paul says, has Christ been divided? What are you doing like, bring, like making yourself allegiant to one leader over another? Stop that. 1 Corinthians 11:17. There's elitism and neglect during the communion service. Remember, the wealthy believers have brought ample food and drink, 
for themselves, but they're letting the poor go away hungry and they're not getting fed at the communion service because there's an elitism going on there. In Acts 6, verse 1, there's racial discrimination going on. The Hellenistic widows are going hungry and the Hebrew Jews are being fed. The Hellenistic widows, of course, were those who lived outside of Palestine that would come into town for the feasts and festivals and so on to celebrate uh, during Passover and whatnot. The Hebrew people were the ones who lived native, lived native within Israel and um, were native to Israel and uh, lived in Jerusalem, uh, many of them as well. So there's local Palestinian Jews versus those who lived in the diaspora, those who lived outside of Palestine, maybe in other countries, would come in. And after Pentecost, these Hellenistic widows obviously stayed in town and uh, they're getting overlooked. They're getting overlooked. Galatians 2.11 is one of the most incredible ones. Peter here is eating with, who's always eaten with Gentiles after his vision of Cornelius that God gave him about Cornelius. Well, it's actually, there's a vision about that all things are declared clean in terms of food. And then Cornelius comes in his life and he gives the gospel to him and Cornelius um, understands Jesus in a real way for the first time to the degree that he needed to. But when the Jews show up in Galatia, what does Peter do? He forgets the vision because he's so afraid of the Jewish opinion of him. So he eats with the Jews and neglects the Gentiles and Paul rebukes him, saying, what are you doing? And as a public rebuke, that had been very embarrassing, but needed for Peter. I mean, this is Jesus' right-hand man, his number one guy, who went, fell back into prejudice and superiority about 20 years later. So it can happen to any of us. So what does Peter say? Love one another fervently. What he's saying is make a shift from exclusivism to inclusivism. Even though it's hard not to have a superior complex, view yourself as greater, as lesser than another. Philippians 2 summarizes this very well. Therefore, if any is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Sometimes this is easy. It's easy to love people and put them ahead of yourself when you already have them in your, on your inclusive list. It's very difficult to love others, and it requires a strain, like a horse at a Kentucky Derby. But we're to seek the meet, meet the needs of others and make a shift from exclusivism and superiority and prejudice to inclusivism. We're to put their interests above our own. And we take it on the chin for the greater good of the community. Now this is a very serious issue in the church. And I think it's an issue in ours too. I actually would like to take just a minute in quiet right now. Take a time of confession and prayer for those people that you already know are those people for you within our congregation. 
honestly, there has to like, who are the people that we might view ourselves as slightly above others within this church? Maybe because of social status and finances, maybe because of age or gender, maybe because of how long we've been Christians or not, maybe uh, so, so, um, social idiosyncrasies that we don't prefer, so we prefer to be with such and such and such and such, and so we make divisions downstairs or, or even in other, other areas of Christian fellowship. So it's never spoken out loud, but we, we know it in our hearts and our minds. Maybe it has to do with intelligence or maturity or whatever. But we have those people. And let's just take a time now to confess this before the Lord because these are things that will affect the body of Christ here at Genesis House. So let's, let's just pray. Bring to the forefront those people that you know God's put in your mind already. If you're ever thinking about things to pray for, people to pray for, this might be a, could be a potential area of consistency in your prayer life within Genesis House. One other category, though, in which we find ourselves uh, needing love to cover a multitude of sins is outside of superiority and prejudice, is disputes. Disputes. In Philippians 4.2, we have these two women fighting, Yodia uh, and Syntyche. There's new girls' names for those of you who don't have children yet. Uh, anyway, yeah. So, I know we, well, you know, what people call their, their kids like moon and sun and things like that. I mean, what's wrong with Syntyche? I mean, might as well go for it. So, uh, yeah, so here we have this thing going on, though, where Paul says this to them. I urge them to live in harmony in the Lord. So he writes a letter saying, I want them to live in harmony. We don't know what was going on between these women. Paul never tells us. But what he wanted them to do was be able to fervently love one another. And clearly in that category of life and the disputes going on between them, they weren't able to do that. And Paul was calling them to a harmony. But probably one of the most important texts is Romans 14, 1-4. I'll read this with you. This is what Paul says. Accept those who, whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. In the NSB, the word is called opinions. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Here's what's going on, and we've, we're familiar with this passage because we've brought this up in church on more than one occasion. 
But the context is they're fighting over is whether to eat meat sacrificed to idols from the temple or not. And there's a division in the church. Is it right to eat meat sacrificed to idols in the temple as a Christian? Or is it not? And they're, having, they're fighting over this within the church and it's causing division. And Paul says this. There's two positions. The strong believers here in Romans feel free to eat this meat. The weak Christians feel that it's not right to eat. And don't confuse strong and weak in terms of like, strong and weak in terms of uh, maybe their commitments to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or their, their, their uh, principles in terms of following the Lord. It has nothing to do with um, that. It has to do with their consciousness. A person with strong conscience feels free, has a freedom to eat anything. A person with a weak conscience doesn't think so. But here's the thing. The strong people, Paul says, do this. The strong people hold those in contempt who don't eat. So if you, if you feel you can eat meat sacrificed to idols, it doesn't affect your Christian walk, you'll hold in contempt those who don't. So this is your attitude. Really? You think that it's necessary to eat that way as a believer? You're a joke. Give your head a shake. Seriously? That's exactly how a person that holds something contempt is. Man, like, how can you live such legalistic lives? Like, get, 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 a, get a grip. Like, man, it's so good to be me because I'm so free. <laughs> right? Maybe in our context, in our context, it'd be more like this. Really? Are you going to wear that to church? Or are you going to really drink that? Okay. Actually, that's not correct. That's the judgmental position. Yeah. More, more. The person who's uh, strong would actually say, "Really? Like, it, yeah." They would be. They would be thinking more that there's a freedom to wear whatever you want and a freedom to drink whatever you want, and that wouldn't. But they think that the person who had those opinions would be in trouble. If I made a mess of that, I can clarify in Congress, in, uh, in dialogue. But still, the attitude still is really that they think it's, that there's a certain way that is, um, that they, they hold in contempt those who think that they have to express their Christianity in a certain way, and they feel free in every single area of Christian life. The weak person, however, um, is judgmental. And you can see this in here, from the, in Romans 1, uh, 1 through 4, I've highlighted it. The weak person judges those who don't hold their view. Their attitude is something like this. Are you seriously going to defile yourself with that kind of stuff? Do you realize that you're making yourself less holy than me by doing this? Uh, this, is a, this is a true story. It happened on the houseboat this year. You guys don't know about this. I uh, just found out about it recently. A guy on the houseboat this year went up to another guy at Pine Ridge and said this. He, didn't, he just haphazardly said, he goes, we all know that drinking alcohol is a sin. It's just lesser of a sin than others. That's what he said. The guy listening didn't say anything, but went to like another person and said, I just felt judged by him. Because he made a declaration. Drinking alcohol is a sin, period. It's just a lesser sin than others. We do it in other categories of life. If you watch an R-rated movie, you're a sinner. How dare you defy yourself at watching an R-rated movie? Okay. 
So the passion of the Christ, R-rated, just wondering, right? True story. I know the I know who this happened to. A girl in another church had long hair. She cut her hair, and she got uh, lambasted by another Christian woman because she cut her hair. And how dare she do that? Because uh, a, a good Christian girl would leave her hair longer. This is 2000 and like, you know, 15 on. This is not like 1960. Again, the, 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 the person who's weak will judge others because they have this hierarchy of what's important for living out the Christian life and bring this upon others. Paul says this, it's all a matter of opinion in these areas. Stop fighting and start loving one another. <laughs> when we listen to these two categories, though, church, you and I fall into one of these lines of thinking guaranteed. Guaranteed. On issues such as movies, music, dating, uh, uh, alcohol, you know, or, you know, all these areas, we fall into one. We're either weak in thought, where we are judgmental of those who don't hold our views, and we think, how dare you live that kind of lifestyle? You're defiling yourself. Or we're strong. We hold in contempt those who don't have the freedoms that we do that they think they should have. And they think, we think they should give their head a shake for all the decisions they make. That's the categories you and I fall into. Paul says, I want you to make a shift. I want you to make a shift. I want you to move to a position of understanding from exclusivism of your, pers your personal point of view and how you view that person to inclusivism. You're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Stop fighting over disputable matters. And here's why. It breeds bitterness in the church, which then affects the whole community of Genesis House. Hebrews 12, 15. Work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life, for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other, context, in-house, so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting the many. If you get a seed of bitterness in you at Genesis House over someone, over disputable matters, over prejudice, uh, over all these different superiority complexes, and things crop up in you, you will corrupt the entire church. It'll spread like gangrene. It'll spread. And the way around this is to fervently love. It'll strain you because everything in your fiber wants it your way. Everything wants you want it your way. And Paul says, no, fight against that and have a spirit of inclusivism towards the other person's opinions. Wayne Grudem said it this way. Where love abounds in Christian fellowship, many small offenses and even large ones are readily overcome. But when love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding. And conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. So that's why you read commentaries. They can say things, at least for me, they say things better than I can. He in five sentences summarized what I've been trying to do for 15 minutes. But you get the point. Isn't that true, though? When, when you are in, when you're, have a superior complex or, or you're in a uh, position of dispute with someone, 
Don't you view every word they say with suspicion? Every body language, oh, they must be mad at me, and things like that. When like, like this craziness. It's all in our own head, and Satan's rubbing his hands, going, I've got another one. Another one bites the dust, as Queen used to sing. Right? We are to be fervently loving one another. You are to love like a Kentucky horse, Kentucky Derby racehorse running on a track. It'll take every effort of your being. But that's how we'll have unity in this congregation. Another area we are to, to love in is hospitality. How do we show concern for love for one another? Hospitality. Verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. So Peter exhorts us to make it a habit of inviting one another into our homes to care for one another's needs, but providing things such as food, shelter, and clothing even. Not only those within the church, though, but just the Christian community in general. There's some passages in the scripture like Hebrews 13.2 and 3 John, 5 through, uh, 3 John verse 5 through 8 that speak about being hospitable to those who are Christians who are not within our own community, but it's the church family as a whole. So it's an important thing to, for Peter for us to be like that in our own congregations, that we're known for having people over and taking care of their needs. And for if we have other Christians that come to town or from other churches in the community, to invite them over as well. This is a requirement actually for elders. 1 Timothy 3.2 We need elders are to be above reproach in this area. So if all of you here are hospitable, the elder in this church is to be above you in terms of uh, their knownness for hospitality. It's, it's, a, it's a, to a greater degree. But here's the thing that Peter highlights I don't want you to miss. Notice he doesn't say it's the quality of the meal that's important or how nice your home is or how clean it is. It's the attitude in which you take towards hosting and providing for others. You're to do it without complaining. <laughs> Our hospitality is the offer without grumbling. We're not to bellyache about the time and effort we're putting in and that we want everyone to notice it. We're not to complain about how much money it's costing us to provide for the people coming over. An example of this in Scripture is Martha in Luke chapter 10. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. <laughs> we aren't to complain to our spouses or our roommates or whoever we're living with or our children that, oh my goodness, like look at all the hard work I'm slaving away to do this and how much money it's costing us extra. We have them over with a joyful heart and we do it without complaining. That is the key that Peter wants to drive across to us. And this is an important place to build greater community and unity within the church as well. Because I don't know about you, but I know when I've had meals and spent time in your own homes, it's always a greater time to build relationships, to build trust with one another, to help each other persevere through times of trial and to help encourage one another to pursue our Christian walk. So again, the question I think is, just take this, you know, talk about it, or think about it, and going home today and tonight and through the days coming ahead. How are you doing in this area? Are you known for inviting people into your home and opening up your home to the fellow community at Genesis House and beyond into the churches in Okotoks? Listen, we're not to be afraid of this. We are going to spend eternity together in heaven. 
Might as well start practicing now. <laughs> All right. All right, finally, the third area of spiritual concern for service, or, or is actually the third area is our spiritual concern for service in the church. Peter's, that's one of the things he wants to address in us, the concern for spiritual service. This is really picked up in verse 10 11. Each one of you has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good. Stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. What Peter is talking about in verses 10 and 11 is how to administer the spiritual gifts within the church. That's what he's talking about. It's the spiritual gifts. Here it says in verse 10, each one has received a special gift. It's the spiritual gifts. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because uh, Jeff and Stuart did a series on this back in the summer. So I just want to highlight a couple observations, though, as a way of reminder and review. Uh, notice the reason for receiving a spiritual gift from God in the first place. It's not for per- personal edification. God doesn't give you a gift so you can boast in your, in, your, in your spiritual gift. It's for the greater good of the church. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. Employ it in serving one another. The gift isn't for yourself, it's for others within Genesis House. That's what it's there for. That's reminiscent of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. In chapter 14, verse 5 and 14, verse 12, the church is to be edified or built up through the using of the spiritual gifts. That's the purpose of them. It's not to have bragging rights. It's not like a big C, like you're not Conrad David. With, it's, you're the captain of the team. That's what a spiritual gift is. It's to, so that all the spiritual gifts work for the common good of the church. It's to benefit the church community. Now, there's five different lists on the New Testament of all the spiritual gifts, by the way. But Peter really divides the gifts up into two categories. In verse 11, he talks about the speaking gifts. He talks about the serving gifts. He divides, there's, I don't know how many, I forget how many spiritual gifts there are. There might be like 20 or something like that. He divides it up into two categories. Speaking gifts, things like words of wisdom, words of knowledge, prophecy, tongues, teaching and preaching. And serving gifts, gifts like administration, helps, healing and miracles and so on. Now, I know some of you might be thinking right now, well, which one do I have, and how do I know? Well, there's many resources out there dedicated to helping you determine which ones you have. But let me give you a word of caution and a word of encouragement regarding these gifts. Don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out which one you have, or don't have. Who cares? Who cares? Here's the point. If you see a need in the church in Genesis House, whether it be a corporate need or an individual need, just step up and serve. Just serve. Here's why. Or here's what's important. I mean, if a need arises, don't stop and think this, well, I don't think I really have the gift for that, but I know so-and-so does, so I'll just stop, I'll just sit back and wait for them to fill that void. That's the wrong attitude towards spiritual gifts. Or to even wondering about your gifts. That person may not recognize the need, but you see it, and God's put that in front of your life. So just go and serve. Just go and serve. If we, if we wonder what we have and how it's going to come to fruition, and, and we, we sort of do this, we'll paralyze ourselves in service. 
And this kind of thinking is paralyzing because we, don't, we won't actually move forward and do anything. If you see a need, just help out. And here's why. Verse 11. He says, So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. If you serve, it brings glory to the Lord. So not only does serving in the body edify one another and build up the church, it edifies God as well. And let me give you an illustration to conclude the sermon that I think is what's going on here. I mean, if you're a coach and you have athletes underneath you, or you're a parent and you have your children, or you're a boss and you have employees under you, how do you feel when you see that person that you've invested in starts to serve or perform or fulfill their duties well as a result of the training and gift that you have given them? So they didn't have these abilities before, but because of your personal investment, you've watched this person grow into something they would normally not be. How do you feel when you've passed that skill set on and they're using that to the, to the full glory of your company or your relationship or whatever? You feel what? Blessed. You feel honored. You feel privileged. You're excited for that person that they're putting into practice the very thing that you gave them. That's exactly, I think, how God feels. In verse 10, these gifts are not ones that we conjure up in our own head or give us. When we become Christians, it says, each one has received a special gift. God gives you a gift when you become a Christian. He gives you spiritual gifts. They're from Him. You didn't conjure them up on your own. You didn't manifest them on your own. They're given to you. So that when you use them correctly, and you're willing to employ them for the church, to serve the church family, God goes, man, I feel honored that the very thing I gave you, you're using within Genesis House. And that excites him. That excites him. If we don't serve, then we don't honor the Lord to the degree that we could. So, friends, Peter says the all the end of all things is near. Let me encourage you to put what we've learned from Peter into practice. May the imminent return of Christ, knowing he's coming back in the future fairly soon, be a tremendous blessing for you in terms of the way you operate within this congregation. May you have a concern for your personal holiness, that you would be sober in spirit, sound in judgment, so that you can pray more effectively. May you have a concern for the mutual love of the Christian brothers and sisters in this church where you'll strain like a racehorse to love one another, as hard as that may be. That you'll be hospitable to one another as much as work as that might be, whether it be financially or cleaning or, or like, you know, preferences in terms of time or preferences in terms of people. And may you exercise spiritual gifts within this church. Whatever God has given you, and if you don't recognize what God's given you, who cares? If you see a need, jump in. Jump in. That's all I have to say today. I think I've said enough. And uh, I don't have any lessons. Because those are the lessons. The lessons are pretty simple. The imminent return of Christ should motivate us to serve in this community, serve for God's glory in these three areas. And those three areas are the lessons today.